Get Up Nation. I hope you're enjoying the Get Up Nation podcast on www.anchor.fm. As a podcast host on over 20 platforms, I really enjoy how easy it is to use Anchor, how Anchor makes everything I need available in one place for free, accessible on your smartphone or desktop computer. Go to www.anchor.fm now. In case you didn't know, Anchor has creation tools that allow you to record and edit each episode. If you're concerned about the distribution of your hard work, don't sweat it because Anchor takes care of that too. If you're considering becoming a podcaster, I would highly recommend Anchor as your choice to begin sharing your content with the world. Get Up Nation. My name is Ben Biddick. I am the creator and host of the Get Up Nation podcast, where I serve individuals, organizations, and societies to develop and sustain resilience and perseverance. I'm the co-author of Get Up, The Art of Perseverance, with former Major League Baseball player and CEO of Lurong Living, Adam Greenberg. The Get Up Nation podcast is brought to you in partnership with GotYourSixCoffee.com, where Navy veteran Eric Hadley is committed to serving first responders, veterans, and their families through a variety of nonprofit organizations. No stranger to adversity, Eric has fused necessity of coffee with his passion for public service. You're already purchasing coffee. Why not empower your coffee with purpose? Why not purchase coffee that not only has your six, but also has the backs of those who don a uniform of service for our communities and great country. Learn more about Eric and his freshly roasted award-winning coffee at gotyoursixcoffee.com. Also coming out in July 2019 from Penguin Random House is a book I had the honor of writing the foreword for called Warrior's Book of Virtues, a field manual for living your best life. Combat veterans Nick Bennis, Matt Bloom, and Buzz Bryan share how lessons they learned during their service can help empower you into a life of deep and lasting virtue, no matter the obstacles you face. Available now for pre-order at the links below. Welcome to this episode of the Get Up Nation podcast. Recently, I had the honor and privilege of speaking with Travis Chambers. He's the founder, CEO, and chief media hacker of Chamber Media, the world's most powerful DTC growth and video agency. Travis and his team make a full funnel of social videos designed for driving conversions at scale, running them as ads on Facebook and YouTube. This enables Chamber Media to scale ad spends, driving millions in sales. At Chamber Media, Travis has doubled the revenue of four multi-million dollar companies profitably. His content has more than 300 million views. 3 million shares, more than 15,000 press features, and more than $200 million in trackable sales. Travis led distribution and content strategy for YouTube's number one ad of the decade, Kobe versus Messi, with more than 150 million views the last time I checked. Included in Forbes 30 under 30 list, Travis frequently gives keynote speeches at conferences such as Inbound, VidCon, Bill and Melinda Gates Foundation, Google Growth Summit, Vid Summit, and on podcasts such as EO on Fire, Thriving Launch, Daily Grind, and others. I am honored Travis has taken the time to share his journey of resilience today on Get Up Nation. Travis, welcome to the show. Hey, man. Good to be here. Clearly, Travis, you are ultra successful in what you've achieved at Chamber Media to help members of Get Up Nation who are facing significant challenges in the pursuit of their success. I cherish the opportunity to share with them your journey of resilience. To start, will you share some of your experiences as a child with osteopenia imperfecta? Yeah, so man, I broke nine bones by the time I was 13. 
And I was just like, God, what the heck is happening, man? And it was, it was always like normal things, like a motocross accident, you know, or wrestling around or whatever not. So finally, we go get a scan. I was trying to, I got bone disease, man. I got brittle bones. You know, like, uh, I don't know if you've seen that movie, Bruce Willis and Samuel Jackson. And Samuel Jackson is glass. So I, I had the exact same thing that that guy got in that movie. Mm. Just You just break your bones, you got soft bones. So, man, it sucked. I was trying out decent at basketball, and I, I made the 18 seventh grade as, as point guard. And then that weekend, I broke both my legs in a motocross accident. Wow. And then the next, the next year... You know, I get back, I try out again, I make the team, and I break my leg skimboarding. And I'm like, God, what the heck? And so that kind of crafted a lot of, I was kind of isolated in this rural town in Washington. My dad would travel five days a week. So it was just kind of like you're stuck in a wheelchair or on a, on a cast. You can't do stuff. So then you just start to get creative, and you start to just decide, you know, who do I want to be? And Am I going to figure this out? And so, you know, I learned to play guitar, learn how to sing, learn how to do video editing, and we'd make motocross videos and put two VCRs together and edit VHS motocross. Somehow life just pushed me into a creative place, and some of the things I was dealing with at home, I turned to humor as a way to kind of cope with. I don't know if you read that book, the, um, Man's Search for Meaning, but the, the Frank Burkle, he talks about how the difference between the survivors and non-survivors, a lot of times in those concentration camps mm. during World War II, was, was humor. Huh. So people I could just find the humor and how horrible everything was, huh. they had a higher chance to survive. So anyway, when I was a kid, I think I just, all this stuff kind of put me towards humor and have been just making funny videos. And it's funny because I'm doing the same exact thing for a living I was doing when I was 12 years old. Today, I was watching some of your content in the, the Skin Nerd piece that's on your website. Oh, I, just, I lost it. It was so good. And, and obviously, <laughs> the world is, obviously shares that opinion. I mean, you've been ultra successful with all this. And so I just, just want to ask, you obviously had to face challenges as you built your business as well. So will you share some of the challenges you faced when you built what became Chamber Media? Yeah, man. So I was a 20th Century Fox. When I was 12, I told my parents I wanted to be the guy who made commercials for the movies. And I was 25 years old, director of social media at 20th Century Fox, and that was literally my exact job. I had my dream job, but it was a total nightmare. My dad was getting Parkinson's and cancer and divorced, and we were having a daughter, and I was working 70 hours a week in this job that I thought was a dream job, and I was missing out on all these early moments. Dude, I was so freaking miserable. Mm. And the same time, I'm watching my dad, who had a rough marriage, not really the fault of his own by any means, and he worked at Monsanto for 25 years, started out as a field applicator applying Roundup with farmers as a regional salesman. Well, he got covered in Roundup all the time. Just 25 years later, he gets Parkinson's disease from it, and there's all these class-action lawsuits Monsanto's losing now, proving that Roundup, the stuff you spray on weeds, causes cancer and Parkinson's. He gets the exact same kind of cancer that Roundup causes mm. and Parkinson's. I'm watching him give his life to this corporation and then kind of losing his health. And after working all those hours and sacrificing all this time, and I was just like, this is not the way I got to do this. 
there is something wrong here. I'm making good money. I got the job I want, but I never see my family. So what's the freaking point? Mm-hmm. If, if all I want to do is spend time with my family, I can't do it because of this job. Then what's the point of making good money? So I kind of got the point. I was like, man, I would rather make less money and work 35, 40 hours a week and have some flexibility. You know, I couldn't even get paternity leave. I couldn't even leave work. For, for after my daughter was born because I was too new. And so I was like, dude, this is all just so messed up. I tried to look around, see if I could find a remote job. I read the four-hour work week, and then I read The $100 Startup. It's a book about how many how these companies start with just $100. And then I read Trust Me, I'm Lying, True Confessions from a Media Manipulator from Ryan Holiday. And I'd had some really big successes in the last year at that time. So I was like, you know what? I can't find the job I want, so I'm going to make one. And I'm going to make a company that provides this type of job to everyone. So early on, you used humor and creative expression frequently to help you be resilient in the face of adversity. As you got older and got into this business realm as an adult, did you still use humor and the same methods? So when I was a kid, like all of us, I was in my default mode. I was just doing what my personality and genetics and everything just kind of had me do. You know, and my default mode was to be kind of happy, go lucky, carefree, making jokes, going out in the woods with a dirt bike and put tape in a huge BC, a BTS camera on top of our helmet. <laughs> that was the, my default mode. But life changed my default mode. So here I am in college. I'm in a degree I don't really care about, studying stuff I don't care about because I've accepted that I need to go this safe career route. And I've been trained and told that I don't want to go into the creative field because you don't make money there. And so I was taking no risks and I was just doing stuff to just go to college and get a job. However, my entrepreneurial flair kept poking out in college. And I had no idea that I was an entrepreneur. I had never thought I was. I'd never accepted that I was. I had never even talked to anyone about what it was like. I didn't even hardly know anyone that owned a company, really. But... I look back now, and while I was in college, I started a painting company that didn't really make any money. I kind of got screwed in a lot of <laughs> situations. <laughs> then I put on an MMA fight, which actually did really well. We had 2,000 people showing up to our MMA fight. We rented an ice hockey arena, and I actually did really well, but I didn't want to sell alcohol, and that's the only way you make money. So eventually, I, I got rid of that. But... um I go into my job, and I'm like, I'm going to climb the ladder. I'm going to do the sure thing. I'm going to have a job. I'm going to be a stable family guy. That's the route for me. And then when all this happened, I realized, you know what? This isn't me. I'm an entrepreneur, and I am a creative. I was at Kristen Porter and Mogusky, and I was a social media supervisor working on Kraft, Turkish Airlines, Vitamin Water, and a bunch of other accounts. Old Navy. I grew Old Navy from 2 million to 8 million Facebook likes. But I, I was there, and I wasn't allowed to do creative. So because I was a social strategist, there was a creative team. Those people were winning awards. They were really cool, creative people. And I was not allowed to touch that stuff because in the creative agency world, people are very territorial and very protective because ideas are what they're selling. And so people get very protective of their ideas. It's actually not a great environment, to be honest, for ideas. So I wasn't allowed to do creative. So at this point, I had no creative outlet. And at this point, I had accepted that I was not a creative person because I was told, don't go into graphic design. 
don't go into film. I mean, I got accepted into USC film school out of high school, but it was 60 grand a year. I'm like, I can't do that. So I just went to a state school at Utah State and I got a, a scholarship there. So anyways, man, I was in corporate mode. Mm-hmm. And when I broke free, you know, to be honest, I kind of sucked at creative. I just hadn't really practiced it. And it took me a year or two. And I just said, you know what? I'm a film director now. Mm-hmm. And like eight months after leaving, I was directing a $120,000 film shoot for Nordic Trek with 50 treadmills and a huge barn. You know what I mean? Like, <laughs> dude, I finally went back to default mode. I had no idea what I was doing. I had no training. I just was like, no, I'm going to do this. And believe it or not, Nerd Skincare was the first, like, hard-selling direct response video that we did. Huh. And still to this day, people think it's one of our best videos we ever did. And that, I directed, wrote, and produced that, well, co-wrote with Laura Clary. She deserves so much credit for how good that is. But, dude, that was, like, one of the first ones we ever made. So it just goes to show you that, like, life and the, the series of things that you're taught and told they can take you away from what it is you're really supposed to be doing. And the truth is, is, if you get to what you're supposed to be doing, you can get good at it and you can always make money. You can make money doing anything. How liberating was that for you, too, to kind of slough off those things that weren't a good fit? It's like wearing a shirt that's too small. At the beginning, maybe you weren't as schooled or, or had as much skill in the craft, but then you honed it out of the love of that and the freedom that existed there. How satisfying was that? Did you know what the biggest thing it was, the feeling was? I felt like I went from being lazy to not being lazy. Because mm. when I was in that social media strategist position, and I kind of wasn't, first of all, I didn't have the experience with the chops to do creative. I couldn't have done that even if I wanted to, really. But, uh, dude, I felt like I was lazy. Huh. I felt like I wasn't being productive. I wasn't fulfilling my potential. And it wasn't this feeling of, like, misery or any of that. I had a great time at Crispin Poor and Bogusky. I was really contributing. I was really providing value. But I just, you know what I mean? I just like, I don't know how to explain it. It's like, it almost felt like I knew I could run a five-minute mile. But for one reason or other, I was running a 10-minute mile. And all I was allowed to run was a 10-minute mile. And so the second that I went out on my own, all of a sudden, I could just go freaking pedal to the metal. And I could break stuff and learn stuff and just figure out things. And then it got, to be honest, over the top where I was running a three and a half minute mile and like breaking my ankle. (laughs) 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 Just like injuring myself to try and get a better time. And that's kind of what that felt like being underwater for two years, just trying to get a breath. But that's what the feeling was, man. It was like without doing what I was supposed to be doing, I felt lazy. Even though I was working really hard, I felt lazy, Hmm. you know, like I was wasting time. So from your perspective, as you experience that, now you have a team, you have lots of members of your organization. How do you get the best from your employees? Do you give them that freedom? Do you identify what makes them feel alive, where their heart is at? How do you help them be resilient to create some of the finest content that the world has ever seen? people on our team they'll say i'm not very good at this and they'll i'm sure there's people on our team that feel stifled in one way or another i don't think there's any way to avoid that and i think people sometimes got to take their own destiny into their hands and force they got to force you they got to force their way into doing what they want however i can guarantee you that we've created a culture that's better than 90 percent of companies out there i think a lot of it too is just because we're small it's easier to do when you're small but We've got 
a four-day work week. So that gives people room to be creative where they're not just stuffed full constantly of, of deliverables and to-dos. They've got three days a week to kind of like settle and for their brain to come up with ideas and things. And I'll tell you this, man. We've had a handful of people we've hired for one job, and we realized in a pretty short amount of time that they weren't very good at that. But in that process, we found out what they're amazing at. So we hired someone to be over all the clients. And this person was pretty good at that, but they, you, I could tell they didn't enjoy it. And that person started kind of gravitating to writing. And so you know what we did? We made her a full-time writer. Awesome. And, you know, there was a guy we hired to be an ad buyer, and he himself was like, dude, this, this is hard. <laughs> you know, like, <laughs> I don't know if I'm doing this. And his background was in project management. And so a few weeks ago, he's now senior project manager over all the ad accounts. Hmm. And, you know, over time, he's not going to be doing a ton of ad buying. He's just going to be on the client side and manage the project because he is a freaking killer at that. Nice. And so... I feel like we have tried, and it, it costs us time and money to do that, mm -hmm. you know? But I feel like what we've tried to do is just say, all right, this person's actually really good at this. Rather than letting them go and getting someone else for this role, let's find a way to put them into, like, what they really are destined to do and their default is, because we're going to get a value out of them in a way that we can't get by bringing someone new in. They're already in our systems. They're already in our process. They know the way of doing things. And I think that has been huge. And then the other thing, too, is we give our people a lot of autonomy. There's not really a super strict get here at the office at this time and leave at a certain time. People are kind of allowed to come and go. We encourage people to work at home or somewhere else a day a week so that they can be creative and get into a different environment and be around different people because I think what happens sometimes at creative agencies is you go to work and you're on the same people all day, hmm. which means you have the same pool of personalities intermixing every day. And it gets to the point where you need to intermix with other people. Right. And you need those fringe opinions and those fringe ideas. And so the autonomy with the three-day work week, I think it just allows people to get around to go experience other things rather than just being in the same spot every single day. So those are the, some of the things that I think we try to do to really help people feel kind of liberated and free. And, dude, it's like I'm at the point now where I'm going on trips with my family all the time, and, you know, the team, they see me doing that, and that I think can create a lot of envy and jealousy. And, and so I kind of feel like the fact that we have a three-day work week gives people a little piece hmm. of what it feels like to have that lifestyle where they can go and they can go do stuff that they want to do that you can't do when you only have a two-day weekend, you know? Mm -hmm. Amazing. What's the funnest part of your day? Dude, I think the funnest part of my day, honestly, is talking to my top people. Hmm. We've become best friends, and when we are trying to figure out a problem or we're talking about forecasting or how exciting things are that are happening – and we're talking about the future and where we're going, that's the most exciting thing, man. It's like when you're a team, it's like when you're in a game and it's a really important game and you're up, you're up on over the other team and you're starting to realize you're going to win. 
Hmm. And it like brings you together and everyone starts just collaborating. It's that, it's that like, I don't know how to explain it. It's like a relationship you can't really have in many other environments. It is like a sports team, like you bond, you know what I mean? It's really cool. When you think of all you've accomplished this far, what means the most to you? And when you think of your legacy, what do you think of as, as you work and grind and collaborate and connect? Dude, honestly, I could have been so much more successful in what the world deems as successful by now if, if I hadn't have done what actually mattered to me. And when I left five years ago to do my own thing, I decided that all I cared about I, I honestly, I decided everything is just a bunch of bullshit. Like <laughs> getting your title, getting your getting your legacy, getting your prestige, your friends and family thinking that you're really successful and that you're so smart and you're got your you got your stuff together and stuff. When all of that happened with my dad and the job and having my daughter and all that stuff, I just realized that none of that stuff freaking matters. And that most people are spending their lives because they want people in their inner circle to respect them mm-hmm. and to respect their title and their job. And now, you get some people who just love their job. My sister-in-law, she's an eating disorder counselor. She loves her job. There is nothing else on this earth she would rather be doing every day. She loves it. I think that's really rare. I think most people, they want to make money. They want to be important. They want to feel relevant. And I decide I don't care about any of that stuff. All I care about is getting as much time with my family as possible and being there when they need me and have experiences and have memories and have a good relationship with my kids and a good relationship with my wife because for me, nothing compares to that and everything outside of that is just complete bullshit. Yes, work is rewarding, it's fulfilling, it's important. We all need some kind of work in our lives to become who we're supposed to become. But at the end of the day, it's like, that's all I care about. In 20, 30 years, when, when my kids talk about me or 50 or 60 years or at my funeral, all I want them to say is he cared about our mom and he cared about us more than anything else and nothing else was more important to him than us. And that's it. If I can achieve that, then my life was well spent and well worth it. I love your mentality, Travis. This is such a breath of fresh air. And what a sacred thing for your family to experience the fullness of who you are, for you to be present, for you to just make them a priority like that. And that enjoyed time that a family spends, priceless beyond words. I I love your mentality. I, I always end the show with six questions to help my listeners understand the why within my guests. Will you run through these six? Savannah, do you have kids? I do. I have two daughters. Yep. Oh, man. Daughters just get you in a way that no one else, no one else does, huh? Most definitely. Yes, sir. Oh, man. They snuggle up. And do, they, do, do both your daughters just kind of just love dad, too? Dad's just I w- a man. <laughs> I would like to think that. Um, and <laughs> I do everything I can to make that happen. They're, they're still pretty young. So one of the most blessed and sacred times of my day are those evenings putting them to bed or telling them stories or running around out on the summer night, having them jump in lakes and catch fish and do all sorts of things like that. I couldn't say from their perspective, but I do everything in my power to make that 
some spectacular moments because it certainly is for me. Do you, do you um, Ben, do you, do you kind of feel like most of the people you know or most people we see get so, like, caught up in, in like, achievement and success and, and prestige? Do you, do you ever feel like just people get so – dude, I just look back at, like, America 200 years ago, uh-huh. you got a farm, you got a little piece of land, yeah. you're working the land with your family, you've got your neighbors, you got your church down the street. If you need a barn built, everyone's going to come around. They're all, they're all going to help build a barn. But pretty much your subsist your subsistence living, you're growing your own food. You've got a family doctor within 10, 15 miles. Yeah. If someone gets sick, they're going to come and they're going to charge you. In today's dollars, maybe fifty bucks, hundred bucks, and yeah. and if you die, you die. Right. <laughs> you know what I mean? Yeah. Right. But like, that's how life was. Yeah. And people were in the field with their family all day, right. you know. And then exactly. they went to school, and then they're in, and I'm just like, God, dude, everyone's so specialized now, and society's so modern and so fast, and yeah. and uh, parents are just pulled away from their kids, and now you've got double, you got two parent households now and they're both we're just pulled in so many directions now and, right. and, and you get caught up in it and i just feel like i don't know do you feel like that man do you just like people get so caught up i do in that i do when people talk about success i think the truest concept of what success is is exactly what you're talking about it's not necessarily you know what i love about you is you have accomplished amazing things but you have your head on so right you are enjoying the miraculous growth of your children and embracing every moment of their awakening into this world while communicating to them how valuable they are and how much you love them that that nothing else takes precedence or priority over that moment of them in your arms looking at whatever it is, fireflies or drawing pictures or whatever your children love to do. But I think, isn't that, isn't that the truest form of success is the way I look at it. Yeah, man. Like, I don't know if this ever happened to you where you're like, you're on the road and you're networking and you're at some VIP party, right? And everybody's talking and everybody's drinking and the music's loud. And you just kind of look around and you're just like, like, who freaking cares? Yeah. It's, <laughs> you know it's, it's I mean? quite like, empty. It can be quite like, empty at those parties. Sitting on the grass looking at fireflies, just quiet with your with your kid, it's just like, there's just not, when you just compare the experience, yeah. that there's not even a freaking comparison. Exactly. You know? 100%. And I just, it's like so many people nowadays are missing out on that. Right. And it's just like, because it's just like no one's told them that that exists. Right. You know, their parents maybe were Gen X or baby boomers that were hitting the rat race hard. And I don't know, man, it's, it's, it's like sad, Yeah. you know, and it's like we don't need people don't we don't all have to we don't need to be as successful as we think we need to be. Right. You know what I mean? Like the chamber does, you know, we're doing four or five million revenue this year. Mm-hmm. But like if, if we did 50 or 100 million. It's not going to change my happiness. Right. The only thing right. that that could change is that that could change my stress level and my misery mm-hmm. and the complication of my life. Mm-hmm. You know, 
That's the only thing that can change. My happiness is not going to go up or down. You know, all these studies show that above $70,000 a year, people's happiness do not go up. Right. And there's one study that shows that people that have $10 million plus, they report very, very slight happiness increase. Mm. So between 70000 a year and $10 million net worth, mm. there is no added happiness. Mm. And the sacrifice it takes to be a $10 million net worth individual, mm-hmm. it's a big sacrifice, and most people never achieve that without old family money. Mm. So so that's what we just got to realize is you get that 70000 mark, your needs are met. Everything after that success-wise, you just need to look at it as a bonus, and it's not going to make you happier. Mm-hmm. And the only way you can be happier is to look outside of work, outside of success, outside of achievement, and look at those factors. Mm-hmm. Family, friend relationships, kid relationships, parents, grandparents, neighbors, strangers in the grocery store. How are we interacting with those people? Mm-hmm. You know, and how are we taking care of our health and how are we taking care of our mental health and taking time to really reflect and to. Yeah. Yes. I want to hear more about your story, man. <laughs> well, you know? yeah, yeah. Well, early on in my life, I learned that what I perceived to be important was to live a life of compassion is the highest form of living, in my opinion. And so I don't see any thing as being important really other than that and with all the suffering and the disconnection that that exists like you were saying where we miss the miracle of what this all is and we miss the beauty of of these moments where it is it's just the person at the grocery store where they may not even look you in the eye and and you take a minute to ask how they're doing it's these things that make life worth living and to ease the burden of others so basically what i did was I just sought to serve in every way I could. I sought to learn what destroys people, what builds them up, what makes them thrive, what makes them suffer. And I just have made it my mission to to discover the most beautiful things in life that I can encounter and then to give them to others and to set them free from things that give them less. So I've done all sorts of things and worn all sorts of hats and had all kinds of jobs and walked out on jobs and jumped into jobs and and committed to jobs for years. And I've done all sorts of different things. But at the end of the day, it's what you're talking about that I think we all know deep in our core what's important, and that's people and uh, just being grateful and cherishing of the gift of being alive and being aware of being alive. Yeah, man. You know. It's- it's so easy to just get stuck and caught up and I feel like too like the more time goes by the easier it is to let stuff roll off my back mm. yeah you know right like the more and more you, you stuff happens, you just get to the point where you're like man I'm gonna wake up tomorrow and I'm gonna be alive and yep. my family's here yeah you know and so so you were a veteran right yes sir yep yeah I was a medic um and so I did I did all sorts of jobs. I did emergency management, so large scale disasters to I helped coordinate response missions for those. I I did all, all kinds of different things. Yep. But one yeah, and what you're talking about really so veterans one of the big problems is veterans are taking their own life at a huge rate. And so what I wanted to do is largely I wanted to go into the most difficult things there are and I want to understand them so that I can help. 
And so we create a world where there is no need for war, basically, where we value life. And I didn't want to have terrorism happening, and so I wanted to create a world where we understand each other more and are effective in our solutions. And and part of that is the connectivity that you're talking about and really valuing each other. And so that's part of my story, yes. Yep. And I knew a guy in L.A. He was a veteran. And his PTSD was so bad, he couldn't leave the house. Yeah. And uh, I remember when I was kind of finding that out, I would go to his house. I just met this guy random. And, I, you know, i go to his house. And I'd be like, hey, man, let's go to the movie. You know, trying to kind of be spontaneous to get him out. And I was like, dude, let's go to the movies, man. He's like, dude, I can't. I can't go to the movies. Like, yeah. I'll have the noise and the, all the people in there and that closed space. He's like, I will have a total, I'll have a total panic attack. Right. You know, it was just like, I, I can't even, and it was sad, too, because I couldn't really relate. And I couldn't fully really be there for him because I'm not a veteran. Right. I haven't experienced So. Sure. So it was only so, only so much I could do for him, you know? Yeah. And, uh, but man, the pain, right. the pain he was going through, like, it was just a miracle he was alive. Right. The stuff that he was going through. And right. I can't even imagine to think that there's four or five million, there's probably like a few million Americans that are dealing with, with that level of right. PTSD, you know, it's, yeah. it's heartbreaking. Yeah. And it's it's powerful to go into those places. And yeah, what I love about you is your compassion there and your willingness to to go there and connect and listen. That's the beginning of the solution. That that alone, I used to work as a crisis negotiator, hostage negotiator too, and I would deal with people in crisis who, you know, were under the influence of substances, who were depressed, suicidal, they're armed, you know, they may have fired off a few rounds in their house and they're just overwhelmed by everything and their, their trauma get triggered and, and all these things. And, and I've also worked with sexual assault survivors and human trafficking victims. And in my experience of doing all of that, there is the power of listening and how that alone um, has the power to do great good, just to listen with compassion and no judgment and just to have them have their voice be heard. That's the start to beautiful things, and that's the start toward healing, and that's, that's a way that lives are saved. And so you may not have felt like that was a big deal um, in, in comparison with the amount of need that was there, but to be that type of person who listens um, and is there with compassion, that is the beginning of really, really powerful catharsis and, and connection. So, so even that... I'm sure it was powerful for the gentleman that you interacted with. And anybody hearing your heart, um, I think, benefits from that. Just knowing that there's people like you who are alive and living the way you do, I think that's medicine for all of us. And it's so hard, man. It's a hard thing to solve. It's what you're doing so amazing because you're, you're helping people connect. And mm. it's so hard to connect nowadays because mm -hmm. we just don't have the same type of community that we had. Right. 50, 100 years ago. Right. Like, I gotta be honest, whether people are listening, whether, you know, whether it was just or not, doesn't, doesn't matter to mm -hmm. me, but, but, but people used to be pretty united right. on a community level. Right. And more often than not, it was church. Mm -hmm. You know? Yep, for sure. But if it was a church, it was the Lions Club. Right. Or it was the Rotary Club. Or it was, you know, everyone was in something. Right. Back then. And now nobody's in anything. Right. You know, and like, maybe you connect some people, a yoga class. To connect with some people with your your uh, PTA 
so we do still have those things, but but on a neighborhood level, right? There's nothing bringing people together anymore. Right. So you have people that really need that community that just aren't getting. Yeah. And if you got PTSD, you know, and it's hard to even go out in public and talk to people. Right. It's just even harder. Yeah. You know. And, it's just rough, and sometimes I wish, it's just like urbanization is really like, made, made most of us less happy, <laughs> you know? Dude, my magnus opus, it's gonna be this. It's gonna be solving victims of urbanization. The outsourcing of jobs, and the automation, and the low-skilled, low-educated, especially in cities, that workforce, that they're just out, there's nothing for them to do. Oh man, my dream is to just get a big piece of land, rural, because I think rural living is a solution to this yeah, community right. thing. Yep. And creating creating like a sustainable housing industry and building a community based on Oh, I love that. It's that reconnection and finding that solid ground that I think is so vital where so many people are so isolated and we get siloed and we lose sight of all the commonalities that we have where we can break bread. So divisive, the, the different political ideologies and the this and that, and we forget how when we just have a challenge in front of us and we just look to the person next to us, that no matter what ideology people have or what they claim or this or that, that when two people get together to overcome that challenge, you find so much more common ground and it breeds life and gives health to both of them. And without any posturing or this or that, just authentic people facing challenges and being connected, I think your magnus opus is beautiful and I think that's what we all need. So I applaud you and encourage you in, in making that happen. And certainly you're doing that with your family and how exciting today you are getting an ultrasound done. You're increasing your tribe, you know, the children who will know your immense love as a father, just tremendous. I just, I, I just wonder, I wonder at the world and the universe. I did not expect this, this conversation today. It's been a beautiful thing. I, it's an honor to meet you. It's been an honor to share this, this conversation with you and, and um, I just appreciate your time.